0: What were Jesus's last words? Go out into the whole world and make disciples. This Catholic podcast is all about helping you say yes to the final and greatest invitation of Jesus, the adventure you were made for. Together, let's explore what business, education, organizational leadership, popes, saints, and scriptures say about fulfilling the Great Commission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Being and Making Disciples podcast. Joining us this week is Deacon Keith Strom from the Diocese or Archdiocese of Chicago. This was a long interview going almost an hour, so we decided to break it into two parts so that it wasn't too lengthy. So I know you're going to enjoy part one and stay tuned for part two coming up soon. Well, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of Being and Making Disciples. Justin is taking the evening off, but joining us, filling his shoes quite nicely, is Deacon Keith Strom from the Archdiocese of Chicago. Deacon Keith, thanks so much for being here with us tonight.
1: Honestly, Dan, thank you. I really have been looking forward to this for a long time. So I'm I'm very grateful to be
0: here. Hey, me too. Well, thank you. So as I said, Deacon Keith is from the Archdiocese of Chicago, where he is is an active deacon. And in addition to that, he is the founder of M3 Ministries. And this is an organization who exists to help parishes and dioceses and in any ministry change their culture to one that more accurately reflects the theological reality of our church especially in that we are a church that exists to evangelize. So we're grateful to have Deacon Keith with us here tonight to talk about some of the, the great things going on in the church and how anybody working in ministry in the parish can begin to make that shift to become a uh, help the parish become an evangelical outpost.
1: Well, wow, thanks. I really actually love that that phrase evangelical outpost. I often use something similar I call it missionary outpost. So uh, praise God, right? That there we go.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wrong. Yeah, no, outpost is, is such a perfect word because it I mean it's like okay, we're out there in the wilderness, we're at the forefront, we're on the kind of the frontera of the this this great uh, I don't want to say battle because that's a little too dramatic sounding, right. but this almost the struggle to share or to spread the light in the darkness. Um, I and, and I
1: love that. It's it's like for me it's like you know, <laughs> parishes should be places where the gospel meets real life, right? And 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 in the lives of disciples, that really should be what it is about. And and so, it's a dramatic shift in the sense of of identity, kind of seeing ourselves as that. Um, so uh, that's the great work that we have that the Lord has called us to for sure.
0: Yeah, and uh, thinking about that there, that great work, it's not always carried out in uh, kind of in practice the way that the church writes about it. And we've seen in the second Vatican council and we've seen in the, in the recent Holy Fathers. And so uh, Justin and I, in, in writing the book and in thinking about this podcast, we've recognized there's at least two paradigm shifts that we want to encourage ministry leaders to consider and then to undergo. And the first is a very big question of what does it look like? And what does it mean to be Catholic? Um, I think right now, if you ask like the average child who is in catechesis, what does it look like to be Catholic? They would say, well, to know stuff and just show up at times. So it's almost an event based religion uh, rather than a like almost like an activity based or, or one that it's not that, that encompasses your whole life. And so the, there's that that old joke, like the laity is there to pay, pray and obey. Right. Um, and we're still pretty good at that. Uh, but it, it's a bit like like having a gym membership and never showing up to, to work out, um, like paying the gym memberships bills isn't the only thing you exist for uh, right. all that, that nice equipment. There we go in and, and lift a little bit. Um, so that's the, the first shift. Uh, we'll call it a cultural shift. Like, what is it? it, it really, they're both cultural. Um, but this one is like, what does Catholicism look like for uh, for the average human being, for the average person? And then the second one is uh, that we need to embrace a missionary identity. And it needs to become a part of who we are. It's just a, a, like we need to reclaim that part of our heritage where we all know the basic story of Jesus. And we have a proclamation ready. So when we, we get on the elevator with somebody. And they say, "Hey, why are you Catholic?" We can just kind of spit that out without any hesitation, right. and we don't hesitate and freeze and say, like, "Oh, you know," because like my my mom raised me, or my parents raised me Catholic, or um, I'm you know I'm not Christian, I'm Catholic, or one of those answers. Right. Um, and so just being ready and being comfortable sharing the story of Jesus. Um, so I'd like to talk about both of those today, sure. um, but let's start with the first one. So um, you work with parishes and with dioceses and with ministry leaders. So, when you go in, what's the first uh, the first couple things you do to help let's say a pastor begin to make that shift?
1: yeah and I, I love the fr- i mean you used cultural shift i mean that's the that's the reality it's 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 what we're facing uh, we're, that what we're trying to do is change the culture. Um, you can have the best strat you can have the best strategy, you can have the best program, you can have the best process you can you can buy everything from Ascension Press or any of the other great publishers out there. And you can bring it back to your parish and if you're not addressing the fundamental culture then that really it might just be a blip you might see some movement and then things will just move back to where they were uh it's because we're truly really trying to address culture and and culture is sort of like the air that we breathe or i always like i always have the image of fish like it's the the water we swim in and and because of that a lot of times the values culture is made up of values the, the things that we value we don't even reflect on it's just sort of this is what it means to be Catholic. This is what it means to, you know, this is the things that we value in, in our parish. And, and it's, you know, cultures about what we celebrate, what we reject, what we, what we critique, all of those things come together. And if we're not aware of our culture, then uh, it can have a profound effect on how we view ourselves, the church, the mission of the church. Um, And, and so sometimes culture can, can focus the, the, the teaching of the church can focus tradition, and sometimes the parish culture, diocesan culture can obscure tradition. And I'm thinking of um, kind of this, the, the kind of holding that you said, that church is, is meant to evangelize, right? Pope Paul VI and evangelization in the modern world, the church exists, right, uh, to evangelize. It's the grace and vocation most proper to the church. And yet on a practical level, if you begin to talk to most Catholics about evangelization, they kind of draw back and they kind of say, well, that's Protestant, right? So even though it's it's essential to the identity of the church, uh, our our culture in parishes and in dioceses kind of causes us to look at that as something that is part of the Protestant Reformation. And so we have to really address that. And so the first and, and, and foremost, what I try to do is, when when I come alongside parishes or dioceses, is helping them recognize what culture is Right. Culture is made up of values. Values are the building blocks of culture. And so I wrote a book called Ablaze, Five Essential Paradigm Shifts to Parish Renewal. And you mentioned paradigm shifts. And you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's really those building blocks of culture that need to change. Um, and so I try to kind of lay out what culture is and then give them some tools to see where their culture is relative uh, in the framework I use to the five paradigm shifts that, that, that need to happen. And I give them a tool I created. It's called the Cultural Snapshot Inventory. Uh, it's a very simple um, tool. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, uh, like an inventory. Like there's, a, there's questions and then you say this happens like never, some of the time, most of the time, <clears throat> excuse me, or always, something like that. And, and my inspiration for that, like I'm not a sociologist. I don't have a degree in statistics, right? It's not like a Gallup-level uh, poll. Uh, my inspiration for that was really um, the the quizzes that that they publish in the back of Cosmopolitan magazine. <laughs> right? it's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? But Lord, the Lord uses everything. Yeah, uh, and so uh, I just kind of threw that out and, and, and to create it, so that the conversation can start. Um, and then once people have a sense of okay, what are the ways? What are the ways we need to shift the culture, and where are we relative to that? Then um, then we have to kind of put a plan together, and that usually begins with. Trying to articulate a very clear vision and a very uh clear uh mission. And and the problem with that whole thing is most people are burnt out on vision and mission statements. One in the corporate world where they're you know, they bring in somebody like me, like a consultant who'll come in, and then you know, you've got a, a team of executives that you're working with, and whatever the, the consultant leads you through a bunch of trust exercises, trust falls, whatever. Right. And at the end of this process, there's this incredible strategic plan that's drawn up and it's got graphs and charts and all these things. And you spent hours working on a mission and vision statement. And then what happens, the consultant leaves and it just goes on the shelf and is never looked at again. Yeah. And in parish life, it seems like we are perennially working on vision and mission statements like uh, the typical pastoral council meets for a term of three years. And usually when a new pastoral council comes in, they're usually like, oh, I think it's time for a new vision statement and mission statement. And then it takes them like a year and a half to develop it and then a year to communicate it. And then the new uh, you know, parish council comes in six months later, and now they're restarting the process. So I always have to get over that hump when I'm working with parishes, because if you think about it, vision and mission statements, rather than being nebulous and ephemeral and like vaporware, right? Like, you know, they they really are. Critical because they are the lens by which and through which you begin to make actual decisions, right? So if you think of if you think of the mission of the church and the direction that God is is um, is is moving the church as like a river, right? I always think of mission and vision statements as the riverbed, right? And so and so it directs the course of the uh, of the river, and so um, that's what we try to do is put together um, very clear very consistent vision, mission statements. And then ha- I ask parishes to reflect on three or four core values that they're going to live out of, right? And, 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 that, and that means that if something doesn't connect to those values, if something doesn't connect to the mission, then we either have to modify it or we have to stop doing it, right? Those are the, those are the difficult questions, but it all begins there. And once that happens, then we can begin to talk about, okay, what is the plan, the game plan for moving us in this direction?
0: i really like the idea of using those uh those core values as almost like touchstones to say is it's a so the idea of the touchstone of course is uh back before people could know the purity level of of gold by like other any other form of analysis um they would have this hard rock a touchstone and they could rub the real gold on it okay. and then if somebody's trying to sell them this other fake gold they could to could make a streak and if So, you know, let's say I come to you peddling what is supposed to be 24 karat gold. Um, So you already have your own little nugget of 24 karat gold. So you make a streak and then you take my rock and you make a streak. And if my streak doesn't look like your streak, you know that I'm lying and it's not it's not legit gold. And I I think that's a that's such a a good approach to core values because it's like, okay, we know what our values are. We know what's important to us. We know what's gold for us as an organization is this gold. And it's not get rid of it. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it doesn't belong here right now. It just now.
1: means it's not, what, it's not what we are choosing to value. See, we have values in our parishes, yeah. right? We just we just don't articulate them, but we all live by them, yeah. right? And so, for example, and that can have very profound consequences on, on parish life. Um, I, I I was a member of a parish. I was on staff in a parish where they had a pastor who uh, was very concerned with um, saving money, right? And uh, so what would happen to the ministry center was also the parish office. And what he would do is, is, the rule was, if you were not in a room, if you were not in a hallway, the lights had to be off. And if you walked in, you could turn the lights on, but then you had to make sure the lights were off. Uh, and if, you, if you, were, you had an event at the parish and you left the lights on, you got just reamed, right? And so what unintentionally, the value there that was communicated to people was first and foremost, the ministry center was not seen as a hospitable place because it was dark. Yeah, right. And people frowned whenever you left a light on or t- even turned a light on. They were almost like expecting I'm going to have to yell at you. Uh, and and so what ended up happening is nobody would come to the ministry center, right? Nobody would come. People didn't want to be there. And and the value that was communicated was that money is more valuable than relationship. And and so that that really was. Um, uh, an unintended consequence and so we, we what we want to do is recognize okay what are what are we valuing right now and what do we want to value and once we choose that then we have to hold ourselves accountable to those things and and we're doing this at at, at uh, my parish my parish is our lady of ransom in um in niles illinois it's a, a beautiful title of mary that almost nobody ever uses um, You know, that Jesus ransomed us from sin and death. And so yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Our Lady of Ransom. So, you know, the pandemic has kind of shut everything down. And we decided as a leadership team that, you know, we prayerfully uh, uh, decided that we would not just restart everything when when parishes could open up again. for, uh, Because first and foremost, what we were doing before wasn't actually bearing fruit, nor was it very healthy that's a whole other topic right but we all want to return to normal but we have to recognize that normal wasn't actually working yeah right so this is an opportunity and so what we decided because we had created a vision document and a mission statement and core values and we met with our leadership team for months to talk about this to have them reflect on it and so we said before we relaunch any ministry in the parish they have to go through what we call the ministry charter process and the ministry charter process if i could use this it's kind of a not a correct way of using this but you know, you know Lexio Divina, Sacred Reading and Reflection on Scripture. Well, this was sort of a Lexio process yeah. on our vision, mission, and values. And leaders of each ministry had to get together and reflect uh, on their ministry in relation to the vision, mission, and values. And then they had to create a document with very, it had very specific questions on it as how to how that ministry would tie in and support the vision and the mission and how they would incarnate the values. And we said while we're doing it, they also had to, they also had to determine what their term limits would be for leadership, and what their leadership development process was, right? And so this was this was a way of of holding our people and holding us accountable to the things that we said we value. And Our Lady of Ransom, some of our values are, um, <clears throat> excuse me, radical openness and cooperation with the Holy Spirit, uh, 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 a focus on encounter. Right. Um, uh, everything that we do has to nurture and and deepen a relationship with Jesus. Right. So these are just kind of three of, uh, I think we have four or five values that we put together. And so how are we going to how are we going to hold ourselves accountable? Is we're going to actually work with our ministries so that they're living it out. And then the ministries are going to be in a sense reviewed. Um, they're going to sit. Their leaders are going to come together with the parish leadership team and say, okay, how are we doing relative to this this charter that we created? Uh, and and a, a process of of reflection, and so we're trying to tie in structurally, right? This kind of support for the vision, mission, and values.
0: I like that. So it's I would I would call that like a vertical alignment. So you'd say, yeah. okay, what is the church saying is the most important thing? How does that uniquely express in our parish with our yeah. you know the spirituality of our patron with Our Lady of Ransom, yes. and then the the charism of the pastor and the gifts of the community, um, to make sure. It, we're all working towards the same, the same goal and the same that uh, is, same target.
1: That's absolutely I mean, that's exactly how we operated. And what's fascinating is how how and I and this happens with every parish I'm I'm involved in, how resistant people are mm-hmm. to kind of going through that process because it does mean that you might have to stop doing some things that are good things objectively, right? They may just they might not be completely on target for mission. Uh And they may not be bearing fruit right now. And so we always want to take a look at, okay, what's actually happening in ministry and where is their fruit? And then beginning to focus on cultivating that. But that's, you know, as a first step and a second step, right, those things are challenging uh, for people because we also need to, you know, mission should drive structure, right? Structure shouldn't drive mission. So it's very difficult in parishes, right, when we want to change because everyone goes, well, given what we have, this is all we can do. Right. Well, so what we said is we're not going to accept the premise of that question, right? We we might have a structure right now that has commissions and committees and and councils, but we're going to look at something else, right? And so at Our Lady of Ransom, we realigned. Um, we we aligned our entire parish structure around mission. So we have a mission uh, discernment team, a mission implementation team, and a mission support team. Uh, and so we that's how we've organized ourselves. And when I work with parishes through M3 Ministries. Uh, after we come up with that vision, mission, values, the next step is, okay, how does this get incarnated into the, into the actual structure, right? How do we change where we are right now to support that? And that opens up a lot of possibility, but like anything else, it also opens up a lot of conflict.
0: Oh, yeah. I can imagine because people are entrenched. You know, they love like maybe they were the president of this or that council and their dad was the president and their grandpa was the president, especially like we don't have a whole lot of that in the, in the South because the church is relatively young in the Southern U S but in parts of the country where the church has been around for 150, 200 years, you do have that kind of continuity and you start changing those kind of things and you're changing people's family tree.
1: It's, it is fascinating. And and I always say that, that, you know, we are called to live in fellowship, right. In, in, in this communio, Uh, in Jesus Christ, not only with him, but with each other. But when Jesus is not the explicit center of our lives, and if Jesus is not the explicit center of our parishes, then the fellowship that we are called to experience devolves into tribalism, right? And so it's, this is my ministry, my area. I've been doing this for years. We've always done it this way. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Like it's all of these things that we see, and when you kind of come in and 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 try to introduce kind of this sense of hey we're trying to align we've listened to what the lord is asking us uh, as a parish we've taken a look at the clues right what is the teaching of the church what is the what is our context as a parish in this time and in this place and what are the gifts of our leaders and our people right uh, now it's time to take a look at that and we're going to align to that and that is very threatening often to many people and so so this is a difficult thing and i go through this all the time with parishes how do you accompany people who are in that kind of tribalistic state and who don't want to reconcile with that. Um, and and they don't want to be accompanied in that often, right? They, they don't want to reconcile. They just want to win, right? They just want to want to push back. And, and that's why we usually see it takes about three to four years of a parish moving in this direction before resistance really kicks in because I think in parishes we kind of get used to, well, that's the flavor of the month yeah you're probably familiar with this right you, oh that's the diocese's latest thing <laughs> so we're, we're just gonna we're just gonna put our heads down and it'll change in six months yeah yeah and then after a few years when they realize oh my gosh this isn't changing then the avatars i call them this the avatars of the of the current culture right begin to manifest <laughs> right and that's when you really have most of your conflict that's when there's like a tipping point yeah and if you can navigate your way through that then change begins to happen much more rapidly
0: Gotcha. So that it's 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 always good to know what the future holds and what you can expect. So that um, if you haven't hit that storm yet, you can know it's coming. And- yeah,
1: and that my pastor always kind of he yells at me a little bit because he says you definitely don't have a charisma of encouragement, right? There's no like because I keep I because it's bad, right? And I'm like, oh, don't worry, it'll get worse, right? <laughs> but I mean, in 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 the sense of this is what you want. You want that conflict, not for the sake of conflict. Not because you want disunity in the body, but when you begin to really have those pitched battles, it means your culture is shifting. Yeah. And people are actually, and you're going to see, there are going to be people who are engaged, who have been part of the parish for a long time, who like they spontaneously, like they don't even have to be like asked to leave. Like literally, they're just like, I'm out. I, this isn't what it means to be Catholic for me. I don't want to be a part of this. Right. Yeah. And then you're also going to have people who spontaneously show up. Right, and they're going to resonate with the things that you've you've kind of aligned around. Right, there are going to be other people who are going to be like, I don't like those values. That's not Catholic to me, and and so I'm leaving. And there are other people who are going to be like, I'm drawn here because you guys are about this, and this is like in my heart right now. And so like the Lord is drawing people. Uh, And so we always say we want people. We never want anyone to leave. Right. I don't. You know, Pope Benedict had that quote about in the future there'll be a a smaller pure church. And I, I think there are there are many members of the church who are longing for that. Like, yeah, let's get a lot of these people out, <laughs> right? So that the true Catholics can kind of be there. And yeah. And first of all, right, I mean we're talking about people's eternal salvation. So I, I don't want people to leave. No. Um in, in that sense. Uh and and honestly, <clears throat> I don't know how pure the church can be if I'm a member of the church. Right. So like in, in any <laughs> in, in any given thing. And I used to be this way with liturgy, right? Like, I used to get so frustrated about liturgical abuse, and, and obviously I want to celebrate and be a part of liturgy that's celebrated according to the norms of the church, right? But I have a friend of mine, his name is Mark Shea. You may have heard of him. He's a, he's a Catholic author. and what, He really said something that blew my mind and it, it changed my whole perspective. He goes, you know, at any Mass, he goes, I recognize I'm the biggest liturgical abuse at that Mass, right? <laughs> because, because I don't deserve to be there, but God in His goodness and His love for me invites me to be a part of that. Yeah. So so we want this conflict and we want people to make a choice. People deserve that freedom to make a choice and we need to honor their freedom to not stick around, but we don't want people to leave. Right. I mean, that's certainly not the thing. So we've got to accompany them, offer, uh, find ways to help kind of get them to a place where they understand what we're trying to accomplish and, and, and really be gracious to them in that process. But at the end of the day, we have to, if people are going to leave, we have to honor that freedom. Father James Mallon, who wrote the book Divine Renovation, he says something like in the first five or six years of, of this renewal process, he lost about, I think he said something like 40% oh, of the wow. parish, right? Now, he wow. said, not all at once. Yeah. And he said, you know what happens to a parish when you lose that many you know, people? Uh, and everyone was like nodding their heads, right? And he's like, well, actually, like our, our financial situation got better. Right, it went up first and foremost because the people that remained were actually um, becoming disciples and giving, but also they were evangelizing and so people were coming, and so he lost forty percent of his prisoners. He said, "And I was sorry to see them go, and I didn't want them to leave." But he said, "Frankly, I needed the seats. Right, I needed uh, because we were actually evangelizing and wow. people were coming. So, so in this process, it's it this process is in fact living out the Paschal mystery." Right? A process of renewal is living out the Paschal mystery it's dying so that we can rise and it's messy and it's never you know Jesus's passion on the cross wasn't it wasn't neat right it was horrifying and it was messy and it was bloody right and 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 so life is messy and and death is messy and dying is it can be a very messy process and so we have to recognize that but recognize that we are not simply dying that we are on this journey into the death of jesus so that we can rise with him so that the the life of jesus which is given to the church can actually take root in her people
0: so that really does require a lot of sacrifice and, and a commitment on on an individual level to say um i'm willing to willing to lay down all of my ideas my pet projects my presuppositions and allow the lord to make manifest in me and in the, in my community what he needs and that I think i know for me that starts to resonate with all of my images of great saints so if i think of the people who helped reform and rebuild the church they were willing to do that and they were willing to say the way that we're doing things right now is not gospel and let's get back to the gospel and the more they were willing to do that the more they were successful and i think you could probably say like the the highest and best example of that was saint francis who was almost as if he just said, "Okay, oh, the gospel said to do that. I guess I'll do that." And right? Can I had a big impact?
1: <laughs> kind of, kind of radical, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I think you know you're absolutely right, and I think um, this is really about. I mean, I think getting to the heart of of Christian life, right? The the rhythms of of the church and mission, and and we want to be able to, um, we want to be able to help the body of Christ get to that place, and that means. Like people always ask me, like, well, "Can the church be renewed?" Because a lot of people are—we're they, they, finally recognizing, I think, in the Body of Christ in North America, in particular. That's my—I I mean, I do work in other parts of the world, but North America is generally in my area of expertise. We're getting to that place in many parishes, and in and in and in a good number of parishes, uh, uh, in many dioceses, that we recognize there's a problem. Right. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. People are going, "Well, it feels like it might be a little broken." Yeah. Right. Um, but they don't know, they don't know what to do next. And they're like, can this even be renewed? And I always like to say that, of course, can the church be renewed? Absolutely. Why? Because we believe in a God of renewal, a God of resurrection. And this God wants his body, right? To flourish. But, um, what it's going to take, right? Our parishes can be renewed only if we have the pastoral courage to live out parish life fundamentally different than we do today. Right, that we have to we have to embrace um, a a kind of surrender of the of the of the model and the methodology that we've used for the past, it might even be 500 years since the since the um, Catholic Reformation, right? The Counter Reformation. Yeah, yeah. Um, And because the culture has shifted for us, and so are we willing to let go of that? Do we have the pastoral courage to live our common baptismal vocation differently? I think parishes in the 21st century need to look radically different. Than parishes of the 20th, 19th, 18th, 17th century, right? Where, you know, the, the 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 parish shouldn't necessarily be the focal point of activity. Right. Right. And you talked about like event Catholicism, right? But in order to do that, it means letting go of some some uh some very, very important things. And we need and we need to just really embrace that. Um, I like to say that, you know, the mission of the church is to make disciples. The mission of the church. Here's an example of something we might want to rethink. I'm just going to lay it out there, um, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'll be gone from this podcast in a little bit, and you can deal with the fallout. Um, uh, the mission of the church is to make disciples. The mission of the church, at its broadest sense, is not to educate children. Right now, the church determined after the Reformation, right, that the best way to help make disciples and to keep people Catholic was to was to kind of follow an educational model. Yeah. Right. But Peter, James, and John were not the first three DREs, right? They weren't the first three, you know, chancellors of Catholic school systems. And I'm not saying that Catholic education is a bad thing at all, no, no. But, um, but we have unreflexively said, well, of course, we've got to spend most of our time, money, and energy on religious education of children, when in fact, the bishops have been saying for the past 10 years, right, that the preferential option for catechesis is, is the formation of adults. Yeah. Right. When we form adults, they can form their children. But so that's just an example of one thing that we might want to rethink. And, and when I share that with people, it, when, when there used to be events in, in a pre COVID world, right, you could feel like the clenching of, of stomachs, oh, yeah. right? And, and the, intake of, out of here. <laughs> yeah, the intake of breath. Now, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even, I don't even make that statement saying, well, that's exactly what we have to do. I'm just proposing it just to, to kind of demonstrate the power of culture. And, and not being reflective on some of the methods and methodology that we use, right? If we want to change and be transformed, right, we've got to look at how we apply Catholic teaching in this new context.
0: Yeah, there's. Um, so about two weeks ago, I shared something very similar to that. Um, I was leading a, a formation group for men and their, their wives who were discerning the diaconate. And um, I shared a, a little Uh, a little bit of a study by Christian Smith, who's a sociologist at Notre Dame, about what keeps kids Catholic or how Mm -hmm. like how parents can make sure that kids continue to practice their faith into adulthood. And the only factor that was correlated with continued practice of the faith into adulthood was around the parents and the way the parents practice the faith. And so somebody raised their hand and said, so does that mean or doesn't that mean that we should be putting all of our resources into parent and adult formation instead of children? And I said, yes. And uh, yeah. it, it like what the parish does with children builds on what, what families do. Uh, right. But that, or the key is it builds on. And if that's not there to begin with, then we've, we we've got the order of operations wrong and we should go back to the family and, and help them yeah. to instill, to, to share the faith, to can, to give convincing reasons why life with Jesus Christ is mm-hmm. the best and most valuable thing and way of living um, so that kids see that and, and kind of just imbibe that from the earliest ages so that when they go and learn about the Lord in catechesis, yep. they're learning about, a uh, uh, they're learning the supporting arguments for a life that they've already lived and yes. not one that is, uh, that is foreign to them.
1: Yeah. And, and they're learning about a person they've already met and fallen in love with right i mean i think that's so important yeah i think you're right i mean that when i when i get resistance around that i just ask people okay how are we doing how's our current model doing right like and and in chicago i think something like there was a they did a, a kind of study like 85% of of young people who receive confirmation um they choose not to continue in any um in, in any way with their faith after confirmation so i would like to say that you know looking at that more broadly in the United States if we looked at what the what the actual numbers are we're not bearing fruit we're not doing well yeah. and and so that should cause us to take a step back and go okay let's look at our first assumptions let's let's look at like our primary what what are we what what are we trying to accomplish how are we measuring it but that seems to be something that the culture in parishes mitigates against
0: we are going to pause here, and then you can join us again next week for the second half of this interview with Deacon Keith Strome, which I promise you is every bit as good as this first part, if not even better. God bless you. Let's go boldly make disciples.